Moving Iron Podcast is proud to be part of the Global Ag Network. The network is going live soon, so check out globalagnetwork.com for more details and updates. Now on to the show. Hello and welcome to Moving Iron Podcast number 111. I got a repeat guest here again, a guy I can't get enough of here, Rich Possum with me, and he is going to talk a little more about the economy. Um, check him out on Twitter if you haven't seen him. It's at, at Rich Possum on, on Twitter, and he's got a lot of good stuff. And one thing I'd like to lead off with here, Rich, uh, uh, as we get started, is a tweet that you put out, and I actually just read about that when you put the tweet out about the CFOs in the next six months and how they felt a little unsure about uh, kind of how the how their economy was going to affect their businesses. And again, you're gonna I'm gonna get some hate mail now because it came from was it CSCNBC or something? CNBC. Yeah, CNBC. But I think for the most part, I there is a lot of tension out there when you start looking at what's happened with the stock market over the last two months here the the big gains and big losses you know the the ultra volatility that we're seeing out there so rich welcome to the show and give me your uh, your two cents on on kind of what that article was about and, and kind of what your aspects and feelings are for that where we're at right now in the economy okay so it's a quarterly survey done by cnbc and uh, it includes uh, chief financial officers, CFOs. It was done on a global basis, not just the U.S. And it turned out that 75% of those polled uh, stated that they uh, anticipate uh, a negative impact from the trade war on their businesses in the next six months. And I did not recall what previous levels were at, but uh, that's a big increase. That surprised me because CNBC uh, over a month ago said there were some studies showing that maybe only 9% of U.S. businesses would be impacted by trade war. Now we're seeing some news that uh, there could be more than that. And what really intrigues me is that we've got global businesses saying they're worried over the trade war. And here the trade war is really just U.S. and China. Yes, we've done some things with Europe on tariffs, but um, it's just interesting that the world is uh, they're concerned over this. They, they think it's going to hurt. Uh, their countries as well, even though they may not have a tariff problem with the U.S. <laughs> right. or China. So they're just worried of this trickling effect, uh, disrupting business. And part of the reason that uh, rising concern, I think, is that from normal, normal business cycles, the world should be slowing down a bit now anyways, and we've seen the statistics start to build into that. And I think what's got them concerned is they're looking at their own business saying things are slumping for one reason or another, and then they're looking at trade wars saying, well, that could make it worse. Yeah. And that has got to the point of uh, concerning the U.S. Uh, stock market, which is why it dropped, uh, what, 7% in October alone. Yeah. Uh, so pretty dramatic move. Uh, you can argue the U.S. stock market seasonally has a problem in October and September, um, but uh, and you can also argue the computers and the high-level risk management we have today in the stock market that everybody heads for the same door. They all sell at the same time. They're all using the same risk management system, apparently. But the point is you have to have a catalyst to start that. And uh, there's two catalysts. One, they're waking up. You know what? The global economy is slowing down. 
And two, this trade war has lasted longer than they anticipated. Yeah. I am surprised that the trade war has lasted as long as it's had. And um, neither side is, is given in. No, no one has even done anything. Um, one thing that I've been following a little bit, and you brought it up last time, and just kind of get your high-level reaction to it, but the new uh, president in Brazil, Bolsonaro. I think it's Bolsonaro. Bol- okay. Then either way, I'm, I'm, I'm gonna. <laughs> I knew I was gonna butcher it no matter what. But but the but the biggest thing there was up until he became president. Um, I mean, China was keeping a close eye on him because of stuff he was saying during the election about you know China isn't gonna come to our country basically and run it. You know we're gonna we're gonna be very happy to trade with you open to doing all that stuff but we're but you're not going to come in and do all these different things like you'd had been doing in the past i think something around 124 billion dollars or something like that that they've put into the overall economy in the last 10 years building infrastructure and those kind of things um china was kind of out we were done they were going they were done talking uh they weren't coming to the table they had canceled the the meeting before the meeting at the uh for the uh, G20 summit, and the minute that he got it reelected, they decided that they probably better come talk a little bit. And I think there's a, probably a little bit of little bit of apprehension, I guess, that there could be some some Trump and and uh, the new president kind of correlating together and, and messing things up for China. So I'm probably a little more optimistic now that there's going to be some stuff move forward with China when you start looking at this because of what happened in Brazil. But I just like your reaction to that and kind of get your feel for what you kind of see taking place there. Yeah. Uh, with this new president in Brazil, uh, I think they're thinking of foreign countries owning their assets. And there has been uh, fluctuation in, in probably 20 years now in Brazil of uh, how much investor dollars do they want to allow in the country to own their land, their farms, their factories, and things like that. So, it, it, you know, it comes and goes. So it doesn't surprise me that it's back again. Uh, I guess we just have to watch of how extreme this new president uh, may take it because Brazil doesn't want to lose their business to China. They got more business now than ever, and they're hopeful they'll hang on to some of that. Uh, so they want to be cautious in these trade talks. But I think uh, I think at the same time that president sounds quite serious about uh, cutting them off in terms of how much are they going to own. And you may be onto something that uh, maybe Trump and and Bolsonaro can kind of work together there too. And and obviously China is concerned that can occur. Yeah. So it's it's definitely brought a new twist into these trade talks. uh, And and maybe we'll finally see something resolved soon. I'm a little concerned China is up until Brazil maybe has thought of digging in deeper. Uh, We've seen that they've come out and discovered they produce far more uh, grains and oil seeds over the past 10 years, so they adjusted their balance sheets. USDA jumped on it in the last report and just immediately went along with China's increase of their supply. Uh, So there's some talk they're just doing that to send a message to the world that uh, they're not too worried if if they import less from the U.S. and this and that. So... um, I, but there could be something to it in the sense that I feel like the way the Communist Party works, uh, that uh, they could be thinking our people can, Chinese people that is, can uh, eat maybe 10% less, and that's going to make a big difference in the S&D. Mm-hmm. And uh, so there, there, it may not be entirely a bluff of uh, them trying to show that they got plenty of uh, supplies and and everybody's going to have all the food they want. They, they could... Uh, 
that country could be very well organized saying, yeah, we're into this fight for the long haul. One, something I just recently dug up is that in China a few years ago when they did a census, they found that uh, their per capita consumption of kilocalories, uh, which is a nutritional factor, was 2,990 per day or so a year. I can't remember what it was. Uh, it should be per day. And the U.S. was like 3,700. So granted, we eat more in this country. We probably have more overweight people. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you look at the prior years, that number, that's been rising in China. It's just because the economy has improved. And if it's improved, you spend more money on food and you eat more. Uh, but my thoughts are, if today it's probably over 3,000 in China, why can't it drop back to 2,900 or 2,800? And if you look 10 years before that they achieved the, the 2,990 number that I saw in this report, uh, you know, that you could say they could drop back even from that level. I guess what I'm getting at is, yeah, they can consume 10% less, and it's not the end of the world for them necessarily. Right. So is that a, is that yet another twist to dig in? You know, it's uh, it's just interesting, and uh, uh, and I, I want to point out on the Communist Party. Let's see if I can pull up some of my statistics here. But the Communist Party has, of course, been in power for decades now. But uh, some people ask, well, you know, they're they're also doing capitalistic things. They're doing even some free market things, and they have billionaires now in that country. Why are the economists even still around? Well, the answer is that uh, the Communist uh, Party has had goals for three decades now of how to improve the Chinese economy. And as it turns out that in 1991, uh, nominal per capita income in China was $333. And today, or as of last year, it was $7,329. So the Chinese people are saying, you know what, the Communist Party did good by us. They improved yeah. the economy. So uh, it's going to be difficult for anyone to, to go against the Communist Party. And I, right. th- I think there's some in the Communist Party who are going to say, we want these trade issues to remain the same, and we're going to fight the U.S. So I can definitely see this lasting a long while, yeah. uh, a lot longer than I ever would have thought. Um, but, uh, you know, it is interesting what we just discussed. In Especially with the—I uh, don't remember the guy's name. I'm bad at remembering people's names, but— the Chinese official that was key in getting China into the World Trade Organization, he made a, a comment about, you know, basically it's not cool to mess with, you know, when you want to do trade war, that's fine, but don't mess with food when it comes to uh, trade wars. And, and then he basically was saying, like, if you start throwing tariffs on soybeans, you know, it's not cool. Well, they're the ones that threw the tariffs on soybeans to start with. But all that being said, there's a uh, there's a concern when they start looking at food supply. I'm seeing more and more about that. Even with um, the last uh, USDA report, I only had world supply, and all of a sudden China came in with a extra six billion bushels of grain that they miraculously found in the closet someplace or whatever, you know. But, you know, things like that, that they, they do that all of a sudden. Now it's jacking with world supply. It's showing, to your point earlier, you know, hey, look, we, we can we don't need your stuff. We got Look at all the stuff we have over here. And typical China you don't know for sure if it's 100% right or not but or or what the overall effect of it actually is happening especially when you start looking at like the uh, the swine flu thing that's going on over there every time you get a new report it's exponentially worse than it was the time before so it makes you kind of wonder how bad it actually was to start with exactly. and, and, and are they just now finally telling you the whole truth um so there's there's some issues there, especially when they're like you said they're trying to show the world, hey, we can take care of ourselves. We don't need 
you know, the U.S. to come take care of us either. Right. And, and then you look at their currency valuation. Uh, we've actually imported more than ever this year from China despite all this trade war. Mm-hmm. And the currency just helped offset some of that on the tariffs so they could do it. But we're exporting less and tremendously less, of course, on the soybeans. I mean, they picked soybeans, and I'm sure those on the food and, and commodity side just did not want to mess with soybeans. They wanted the relationship with the U.S. They had, we've had a good relationship. They love our soybeans quality-wise. But I, th- I think the, the Chinese officials just said, yeah, but you gotta, you got to pick something that's going to send a serious message. And, mm-hmm. and so, unfortunately, that was, that was soybeans. And obviously, there's much more to this. On the, there's many more different types of tariffs going on. But, uh, but yeah, you can see on one hand, China can dig in and last quite a while. On the other hand, you look on the financial side, and their economy is, is slowing, uh, just as the rest of the world is slowing. And their stock market has not done well. So the investors don't like this. They've pulled out. And I learned over the past three months, foreign investors haven't really been investing in Chinese uh, bonds the way they were. Uh, And normally I wouldn't pay much attention to that because I just feel like China's got plenty of reserves. They've made good money out of all this uh, global trade and global manufacturing. But um, at the same time, they're spending a lot of money. They've been building this $1 trillion uh, Silk Road uh, belt, I guess it's called Belt and Road system to be able to work with nations in Asia and th- all the way to Europe. Uh, so that's a lot of money they're shelling out to do that. But they've also been making huge investments in other countries than just Brazil. Um, oh, yeah. On one list, there's like a dozen nations they just recently spent $98 billion on. There's still yet a separate list that uh, it was $24 billion in like Africa mm-hmm. that they've been working on. Now, some of that is definitely designed to try to get commodities out of those countries. Uh, and build better relationships, but it's also designed for just business and, and investment. But the point is, if their financial situation, if the free market system over there in terms of their bonds, their stock market uh, gets damaged enough, and they're shelling out money on the other end for all these countries, it could also put them under pressure saying, well, maybe we can't push as hard as we yep. as we thought. Uh, and it'll be interesting to see where their stock market goes because... Um, I'm kind of caught in the middle of all the stock market situations globally and the U.S. On one hand, I can see a very significant bottom here in just the next couple of months. The entire world recovers uh, in 2019, does a little better, and that recession I've been talking about just gets shoved right out there to late 2020 to 2021. But at the same time, there's been enough damage in the global stock market and enough negative behavior in some of these manufacturing and services indicators that I follow around the world that this could be it. For 2019, we could see uh, the recession. And, uh, I mean, we have Italy. Uh, I think there's like four different Asian nations um, that uh, their manufacturing service indicators, some of them dip below 50. What that means for those PMIs is the, the country's now contracting. Uh, it's not growing. So so we're getting a real mixed situation where we can see we can make some changes here and get this trade war over. On the other hand, we can see where it digs in for, for quite a while. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, you know, Normally, I would think of uh, that these countries would uh, be concerned now and want to, especially China, would want to try to fix this thing because they've got to be able to see what I'm looking at, that the world's decelerating. And uh, on the other hand, I'm a little concerned the Trump administration might say, well, that's our advantage, so we can push even harder when maybe they shouldn't, because, right. <laughs> you know, if we could just uh, spill over. So, 
boy, 2019 is going to be a, a tricky year. I, yeah. I, I can see where everything falls apart, and I can see where we get, uh, say, the last leg higher of this economic bull run that we've seen since 2009. Mm-hmm. So the stock market, that's a good good point you brought that up. So I'm looking at the stock market, and I'm watching it do all the crazy things that it's doing. And, I mean, therefore, uh, probably up till late August, early September, every day was the best day ever, right? And then, then it started taking those big five, 600-point dips, and then it would come back the next day or might even come back the same day. Um, they're just huge swings that you're seeing out there. How much of that do you think is a correlation between what you see happen in the rest of the world's stock markets, whether it's you know, the Chinese stock market that's off 24% this year, the uh, European stock market is off double digits, um, up, I think it might be up around 25% last time I checked. But these other stock markets around the world are just struggling to make things happen, but yet the U.S. stock market is was accelerating when everybody else was dropping. Do you feel that maybe some of the traders are looking back on that right now saying, like, maybe we were too much of a bull here and we're going to start kind of pulling stuff back? Yeah, that's definitely part part of it. I don't want to say that's a primary driver, but, um, yeah, they in September to October, they did step back and just say, you know, we've been bull, 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 but what is going on in the rest of the world and how long can the U.S.? You know, I wouldn't be surprised if we see a recession in 2019 that five years from then historians are going to come back and say, you know what, the uh, it was the global market actually dragged the U.S. down, and it was non-U.S. countries that caused the recession, whereas over the past five decades there's been a saying that, well, if the U.S. catches a cold, the world catches pneumonia, you know, it's like, right. and U.S. would normally start the recession and normally start to recover. We started the recovery this past time, and we've been the leader. We've been the strongest economy, so that part's worked. But I'm, start, I'm starting to think, you know what, it could be the world that's sliding down now, and pretty soon we're going to slide behind it. I think that will help support my thinking that this coming recession is going to be very mild in this country, that we're going to remain relatively stronger than the rest of the world. Uh, but there's no way of guaranteeing that. Uh, so I'm not that pessimistic on the U.S. Why do you think that? Why do you think that there's... That we're going to be more sheltered than the rest of the world. Uh, better, better uh, monetary financial structure. Okay. Uh, uh, probably better business structure, uh, and our domestic economy. Unless this trade war can can bite us much more than most people are dialing in, our des- domestic economy it just looks like it can hold up better. We got a more solid footing. Uh, the rest of the world doesn't really have uh, the mechanics. Uh, with their central banks and their financial system to help protect from uh, a recession. They'll get it done. They'll protect themselves eventually. They just can't do it as efficiently as we do. Right. Talk about interest rates. We've we've talked, we've kind of hit on that a few times uh, the last two or three times you've been on here. But um, interest rates are definitely something that are on people's minds right now. You start looking at prime rates and and where uh, various lending institutions on the ag side are are, kind of pegging that, that, uh, that five-year kind of note looking out as far as equipment goes. And a lot of them, you're looking at anything from five and a half to six percent, six and a half percent. The Federal Reserve has somewhat hinted that maybe they're going too fast, but not really looking to slow down anything. Um, But it's also going to, and how that affects long-term interest rates, what you see out there. So what's your feeling for the interest rates that we see right now? Do you still feel like the Fed is going to continue on with the same monetary policy it put out about at the beginning of the Trump administration? 
And you feel like it's going to be the same? You feel like they're kind of going down the same road for a while? I think, yeah. I, th I think they can back off a little in 2019. Uh, and this, I only come to that conclusion here in just the last couple of weeks of looking at some of the polling going on. And everybody's starting to swing towards, yeah, the Fed is probably not going to push as hard. I think as of yesterday, I saw a poll that said uh, two interest rate hikes next year. So that would be less than yeah. what we've recently seen. Uh, they still assume that we'll get a rate hike next month in December, uh, that they'll follow through with that and then kind of back off a bit and, and watch things. And uh, everybody wants to, when, when the Fed releases their comments, they're going to be, those computers are going to be looking for the comment of uh, more data dependent. And that'll be a signal that what they're saying is they're going to follow a broader range of, of fluctuations, and they may be watching the stock market saying, well, maybe there's something a little bit wrong here that's mm -hmm. a little too weak. So I could see them backing off a bit. I think I'd probably back off a bit. Um, but at the same time, so far they've been doing what the system, uh, how we've always done it, and uh, you know they had to get that rate up there to make sure the economy doesn't uh, get too hot and self-destruct at some point, and as well they needed a cushion to help out in the next recession. So it's obviously they had to do it. It kind of upsets me when investors get upset over a rise in interest rates uh, because really we need the Fed to raise their interest rates a bit to give us that cushion for that next recession because that's how the system works. Mm -hmm. uh, there's people who don't like it and they want a different system, but I've never, as of yet I've not seen a, anyone come up with a, a better system. And uh, so, you know, again, I get what they're doing. But I also get with the people who are anti-Fed right now on, in terms of interest rates, especially President Trump. He doesn't want it up on his watch, right? right absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> so so I, I get yeah. that. I get that too. I, I think uh, I think the the Fed could kind of chill out just a, a little bit here and uh, let things pick up. And there's going to be more discussion of this over the next several years. That does the Fed have the right target at two percent? Inflation. Uh, I mean, 10 years ago, I even decided, I'm not so sure that's the clever idea. Uh, or you, maybe you leave it at 2%, but the Fed should let everybody know, we're not going to slam interest rates higher just because it goes to 3%. Mm -hmm. uh, they need to send that kind of message. And there's, uh, I haven't read it yet, but I just learned yesterday there's a book out there that discusses how several of the bigger countries in the world have adopted this 2% target for inflation and explains how they got there, why they're doing it. But it then goes forward and says that it's flawed and that they need more flexible than that. And I think it's probably going to, like I said, I haven't read the book, but I think it's probably going to suggest you can get by with a, a higher rate at times. And um, that's my, my thinking is you need a little more room in there, let that inflation go a little bit higher at times, uh, and you can still have a better economy without doing something that's actually going to self-destruct the economy. You'll still you just raise the limit a little bit. Yeah. So that'll be interesting to see how, like I say, I, I think that's going to be ongoing discussion for quite some time. Uh, is that 2% target right? Um, it, you know, now, now that we're on interest rates, I've been doing some uh, work here in the last two weeks uh, with economist uh, Matt Peters, a friend of mine, uh, and we've both been near-term bullish. We kind of felt like next four weeks we'd see uh, rates make a new high for the year. And, uh, and all of a sudden last week, boy, the rates just did an abrupt turn after a intra-year buy signal on rates, if you will, and just did a brump turn like it's trying to wipe that signal out. Hasn't done it yet, but it's very close to doing it. And a little concern that means maybe rates can back off a little while. So we're thinking the bond market really is considering this collapse in the stock market. I shouldn't call it a collapse. Some are, but, you know, it's a volatile down move. The stock market that they're wondering why investors are so worried. 
And they too are looking at this global situation and the trade war and everything else is going on. And I think they just feel like, boy, things have evolved here to be a little more negative. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyways, that sent me back to, to my model and charts and whatnot on, on the really big trends of uh, interest rates. And uh, so I'll start out with some big history here. In 1946, a super cycle low in interest rates uh, that was actually late for the cycle, latest allowed, and it had to do with uh, World War II. We simply kept rates down on purpose to help our economy and mm-hmm. keep going while we were in World War II. Well, interest rates then rose pretty much at a steady pace from 1946 all the way up into 1980, uh, surging into 1980, which I'll explain in a moment why it surged. But it put in a super cycle high. Interest rates then marched lower all the way until we get to the financial crisis when they just plain collapsed. And that was just because of uh, the poor economic conditions and the Fed willing to get rates down to zero if it had to, to try to help put the brakes on and, and put an end to that financial crisis. Um, so now we're seeing rates kind of chop around here. I think a super cycle low is due in just the next uh, two or three years here. I mean, the Fed rate could take a little longer than that at the bottom because normally Fed will not raise its rates until the free market rates are already up and the economy is already growing. Um, so this next recession I've been talking about is should create a, a dip in interest rates. I don't think, personally, I don't think it's going any lower than what we've seen um, for uh, like the 30-year bond and the 10-year note, things like that. But it could. Ideally, it should even. Um, I think even if it goes to a new low, we'll find out it's an overreaction in the interest rate market, not necessarily uh, a severe economy. I just do not see a severe economy. We, we uh, cleaned some things up in that last Great Recession thing. Um, so I'm looking for a bit of a pullback in rates off that recession, and then I think rates are going to rise all the way into the 2030s. But I have been saying this for about 10 years that that's what it would occur, and I don't see anything change in mind other than I don't think rates are going to rise as uh, fat as high as in past super cycles. And the reason is we've got a fundamental change in our economy. We are far more creative, productive. We've got robots coming online. It's going to be difficult to increase prices in labor and, and uh, various products that we manufacture just because of this easy produce production, let's say. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's going to limit the upside, but I still do not see any reason why rates won't rise. And I'll be interested to see who we see in coming years who's at the head of the Fed, whether they would be open-minded to that. Uh, I was kind of surprised that Trump did not uh, stay with uh, Chairwoman uh, Yellen at the Fed uh, because I kind of felt like she was kind of dovish and might be more inclined to say, you know what, let's not get too nervous about inflation at 2%. We'll get, we'll get, we'll get nervous at 3%. And, uh, and uh, would also allow interest rates to track higher behind that inflation. Uh, and it's interesting that Trump replaced uh, Yellen with, with Chairman Powell, Powell uh, who might be a little more conservative in that regard. He definitely was willing to raise interest rates this year. He definitely said he wasn't too concerned about the stock market dropping. You know, mm-hmm. uh, so they'll just be interesting to see you in coming years. Uh, do we get some uh, some people at the Fed willing to allow higher inflation, and then we'll see higher interest rates? So what I want to talk about with this super cycle is uh, again some of the history. If you look at it. From the 1950s into the 1980 peak of, uh, of interest rates, and you can even go all the way back to the 1930s depression if you'd like, uh, you, you'll find that inflation, interest rates, the stock market, economy, wages, uh, did I mention real estate, uh, basically everything went up in the 50s and the, through the 70s. 
And the 50s and 60s is what we call early inflation. That's actually a good thing. And what was going on? People were getting bigger paychecks. They were putting money in a savings account uh, and getting higher interest rates for it. They were still putting money in the stock market uh, and getting a good yield, nowhere near the yields that they, they get today. Uh, but it was a nice balance. They could feel safe that like they didn't have to bet all of their savings in the stock market. And today we got a problem. There's a lot of people complaining that the interest rates have been so low that everybody's forced in the stock market. And, you know, the stock market could drop 90% any given day. There's no way anybody can guarantee it can't. So we really are investing in the most risky part when you, say, look at CDs or something like that. Uh, so this, uh, this whole process, interesting enough, you could just see the 50s and 60s, people did well. But by the 70s, inflation was getting carried away. It was going into what we call late inflation, which is bad. And in late inflation, people just get pay raises for the sake of pay raises. You know, they're literally just saying, hey, um, you know, I can't even afford to, to pay my grocery bill anymore. What are you going to do about this, boss? And they get a little pay raise. And it, it starts to spiral. You're, you're going too fast. Labor's increasing its cost too much. And everything is just getting too expensive. So in the 70s, I'm very convinced the Federal Reserve woke up to this saying, you know, it's been a nice system until now. But this system is going to burn out. Someday it's going to turn into hyperinflation, and we're going to be no better than the third world nations like in South America and whatnot. You know, someday this is going to self-destruct. We're going to be a poor nation if we keep this up. And it's just fascinating that uh, who shows up by 1980 or so uh, was uh, Chairman uh, Paul Volcker. And what's Paul Volcker's background? He was studying inflation and what to do about it. And he was the guy that had the courage to, to lead the Fed and say, you know, interest rates are following inflation higher, and that's just because the banking system is trying to make sure inflation doesn't cost them too much. But that doesn't, that doesn't do anything to the system. We still are stuck with this rising inflation, and it's just going to get worse and worse and worse. So he simply said, let's just raise interest rates faster than the rate of inflation. We're going to kill inflation. Now, he also admitted, even to President Reagan at that time, it's also going to hurt the economy. I mean, he created a recession. And there's even discussion now, uh, Volcker just come out with a book, and apparently President Reagan was trying to pressure, uh, just like Trump is trying to pressure today, Reagan was trying to pressure Volcker back then, don't do that. Mm -hmm. Don't cause a recession on my watch, right? right. And Volcker went ahead and did what he had to do. And uh, it did the correct thing. Uh, the, the Fed realized, uh, putting it bluntly, the crap was going to hit the fan. Mm -hmm. The system was going to self-destruct. And they hired the right guy for the job, and they got it done. They, they killed inflation. Now, of course, President Reagan was also a symbol of changing mentality in this country of more pro-business, more capitalism. And so there was other things to it. And so what happened is we started a brand new trend. We had that inflation trend from the 1950s into the 70s, or even from 1930s to the 70s. Um, we started a brand new trend from the 80s into the 2000s. It's called disinflation. Uh, that's all there is to economics and practically everything in life. Everything goes up or down. That's it. And that's the way it is inflation. You have inflation, you have disinflation, up or down. Um, their early phase of disinflation is a good thing, just like early inflation is a good thing. In the early phase of disinflation, you're producing more and more and lowering the cost of that to the consumer so the economy does better. And hopefully you're creating a better environment there so that you can lower your cost of production and therefore you don't hurt labor. So the theory is, is we sell more units, more widgets, and uh, at a lower price, but we actually make more money. And our workers are happy because they're still getting paid. And it was working fine for us in the 80s and the 90s, and then it started to change. And by the time you get to 2000s, we were getting into late disinflation, 
which can also be called uh, just flat out deflation. Deflation's bad, uh, and you get into a deflation depression. So in the 2000s, we were vulnerable to a deflation depression, the opposite of what we were looking at in the 70s to 80s. A deflation depression is an implosion of your economy. Everything gets cheap too fast and eventually even crashes. Um, and so who did the Fed hire when they realized, we got a problem coming again, we got to change the system? They hired yeah. Ben Bernanke. Yeah. And what's Ben Bernanke's background? He was trained to be dealing with deflation depressions. So they knew what was coming, and they brought him on board. And you can argue that you know, people don't like what he did, and some don't, and others do. Pointed, and it was very experimental, um, but it worked. Today, we got a larger economy than any time in the history of the country. Uh, we did pull our way out of it. Yes, there's plenty more debt <laughs> out there, too. And I also want to throw in there uh, a little sideline here. In the last two weeks, there's also greater discussion that uh, U.S. and uh, global uh, corporate debt, uh, or just debt, period, is getting too high relative to GDP, according to economy. Uh, even billionaire investor Paul Tudor Jones, I'm a fan of Jones, uh, he came out and said, expect some scary moments for, for a while now. Uh, and he was just saying, too much debt, uh, that kind of thing. Uh, so we do have to watch out that. But I guess what I want to point out with this, uh, this idea of got inflation to disinflation, which I'm not the only one that has it, but... Um, it, it dovetails nicely with this cyclical business, this business cycle research I do, and um, we should see this super cycle low. And what it's saying is, yeah, for the next 20 or 30 years, you should have higher interest rates. But something's got to change the mentality of the Fed there to also kind of go along with that. And uh, we need a different mentality of how we're going to trade markets. And uh, so my guess is interest rates are going higher. I just don't think they're going to go as high as they were in 1980, which some of the cyclical research says, yes, by 2030s it should be there, which is 17% and would be scary. But I, I think there's been some fundamental change to, to our system of how it works and globally and the U.S. And I just I don't want to get that bold up. I could see a possibility of the 30-year rate as of this week was 3.3%. Um, I could see five to seven percent. I could see seven percent, maybe seven and a half by the 2030s. If we get spikes sooner, I think there's going to knock it down. Uh, something will occur, whether it's a recession or whether Fed does something, I don't know. But um, so I don't want to be the outrageous bull I was probably 10 years ago on interest rates because I can definitely detect a change in how we do business is going to limit that upside, and the Fed won't have to work so hard of limiting interest rates, but that should be a message to the Fed. I, I, I agree with some of these people that are complaining, like Jim Cramer on CNBC has been really going after the Fed that claims they don't know what they're doing. Uh, I do think the Fed should reevaluate how it's uh, dealing with inflation here because it can raise interest rates too high. I mean, some people feel that's exactly uh, what is the primary driver right now for that uh, stock market decline was the quick rise in interest rates. But you know, right behind is that realization that the global economy is uh, decelerating. So, anyways, I want to be a super cycle bull in interest rates, just not as quite as bullish as I once was. And, uh, and on a shorter term basis, I think interest rates are going to top this year or next. Uh, and that dovetails nicely with this idea of a recession in the next two to three years, because uh, interest rates will come down as the economy starts slipping, and then pretty soon the Fed's going to lower its rates as it realizes, you know what, we are in a recession. And, uh, again, one of my favorite indicators that people could keep an eye on is um, the uh, procurement manufacturing uh, indices. Uh, they call them PMIs. And you, you can watch those for manufacturing and services. And they come out about the first of the month. 
And, uh, and that's what woke me up here in the past. I've been nervous all the way back in May. I said, boy, something's not right in the global economy. We've got problems here. And then it kind of recovered, and then it got worse. Uh, but, boy, in the last month or two, uh, we've got countries that are under 50, and 50 is your threshold on the PMI. If it's below that, you got to get worried that manufacturing and services are saying, hey, the economy is now slipping. It's, it's going backwards, not going forward. Um, for the U.S., if you see a 45 or lower, we're in a recession. Uh, now, um, if I saw 45 in the mid portion of the upside of these bigness cycles I follow, I'd probably actually bet against that. Uh, I'd say, no, you're not going to have a recession. And I kind of did that uh, back in 2012, I think it was. Uh, uh, dip below 50, and everybody thought, oh, boy, we're just going to fall back in a recession, and everybody was very pessimistic, and I said, no. Nah. <laughs> and the stock market dipped, and I just said, that's, that's a buy. Now I can't gamble that way because we're in the time frame for that peak in the economy and the peak in the stock market and uh, eventually a peak in interest rates, and we're going to get that recession. So now what I'm concerned is I see below 50, i got to consider, you know what, what's going on its way to 45, we're going to have the recession. Now, a little message to businesses out there listening to this. Uh, my thoughts are don't panic on a recession. It's so easy for businesses to say, oh, i got to lay off people. And that makes it worse. Okay? And uh, FDR got it right in the 1930s when he said all we have to fear is fear itself. And you can just see uh, that's how these recessions even turn into depressions. And that's what Ben Bernanke knew. He said, boy, if you don't save the financial system, it's just going to get worse. You're going to see runs on banks, and it's just going to hurt the entire system. Uh, so that's what I'm thinking, too, is, uh, you know, it'd be nice to, if you look at these recessions all the way back to 1940s, uh, you can't include the 1930s because that was the Great Depression. Uh, but that's, uh, these recessions have actually been buy opportunities in the stock market. They've been buy opportunities in businesses. If you could buy a, a business, sometimes in a recession, a business refuses to sell or it won't lower its price. It'll wait for the next rebound. Uh, so sometimes the business cycles are not helpful in the sense of how you'd like to time purchasing a business or expansion, but at least it gives you a, a clue of what you're up against and how you're going to manage that. But uh, ultimately what I want to point out to business people out there is that uh, get this recession out of the way, it's just a correction. You're going to have 7 to 12 years economic growth, and the stock market is going to be bullish during that entire with new record highs. Um, commodities. Seldom do you see any commodity stay up for 7 to 12 years. Gold, right. gold could possibly do it. Um, uh, maybe some of the other metals, but generally what happens is uh, that we run the commodity so high in just one to three years that it then has to spend three to five years coming down. So it doesn't follow that pattern quite as well. But it does tell us you get better demand. So once we get that recession out of the way, I'm very convinced we're going to see better global demand. And the global demand was not that good this decade. Uh, they have not recovered from the Great Recession as well as the U.S., but I think their turn is, is coming up here next decade to get this recession out of the way and uh, see a nice improvement, and, uh, and then the U.S. is still going to do well, and ultimately I think it's going to be better demand for commodities and better commodity prices. But right today, you know, let's face it, we should, we should have seen better corn prices than this uh, with that balance sheet we had this year, and the trade war was definitely a big factor. Yeah. Uh, but it's also, I think what people are missing, the fact is the global economy really wasn't that great. Right. And, uh, so we just didn't have the price push, even if we're selling plenty of commodity or any kind of product we're producing. You'll just see we just didn't get the price uh, push out of it. Mm -hmm. And it's just because it's not that great economy globally. So one of the things that I've noticed a lot, and it affects the commodity market that I deal with uh, on the ag side of the business, is the price of oil. 
price of oil in the last month has just tanked, man. It's just went it's dropped twenty bucks in the last four weeks, I think. And so now we're up from we we're up in the seventies, and now we're back down into the fifties, high forties, you know, uh, right now. So that does affect the uh, ethanol demand because fuel's cheap, and you know people don't really invest in ethanol, and ethanol isn't worth worth the uh, worth the cost there as far as that balance goes. What's your what's your feel for oil, and what do you see it kind of taking off? Was it that oversold to where all of a sudden now the supply caught up with it, and now it's just I mean, what what was the driving factor there? Is it because the U.S.? I mean, we're now a net net exporter in oil, and mm-hmm. and what's happened with Saudi Arabia and everything else? I mean, is it just all of a sudden supply caught up with demand faster than what people realized? Is that pretty much? Yeah, it? it's interesting. The crude oil didn't seem to pay any attention to this trade war until just recently, but we were selling oil to China to and and and, and yeah, our best exports ever, I believe, and and just looking fantastic for us, and all of a sudden. It's come to a screeching halt. The world is buying less from us, and China doesn't buy any. And the crude oil market finally decided to focus on that, saying, "Well, that's that's an issue. You know, maybe this trade war is a problem for us." Um, but it was also this global demand that, that they're, they're very good at watching. I mean, Saudi Arabia—they hire some of the best economists around the world, figuring out, you know, what's the rest of the world doing, and, and they'll try to their OPEC thinking was make sure we don't get oil too high, but don't get it too low either. Mm-hmm. I mean, they want to make a buck. Uh, so they woke up that, yeah, there's there's some issues here. Uh, Trump played a role in some pressure in there, too. But um, it really also got it kind of high priced. You got the investor pretty much loaded up on it on the speculative side where they couldn't necessarily buy any more. So it's like sometimes in markets, you, you went suddenly you have 10 things that are bullish, and almost overnight everybody's focusing on six things that are bearish. So they just, mm-hmm. And that's, that's what they've done. And, and normally uh, crude oil would come down in October. Uh, seasonally. So you had some of that impact there as well. But you're absolutely correct on the drama of this thing, the volatility. Seven-week drop. I think that's the worst on record, Um, although I hear that from other analysts, but I have prices all the way back to 1896, so I wonder if they have that because a lot of people don't. So if it's not correct on the worst on record, it is the worst in the last 20 or 30 years. So real slam dunk, if you will, and crude prices, and my models kept up with that pretty well. I had, uh, I'm not so sure about picking the top, but I had price levels like at $68 that, you know, if it goes through that, it should drop five to seven. But the problem is if it drops that much, it should drop yet another five. And, and you got this stair-stepping thing, uh, like right. a snowball rolling down a hill faster and faster. So uh, I'm very pleased uh, this week we struck my uh, most bearish target, I said, a month ago of uh, 55 to 48, and it just dipped below 55 uh, this week. You could argue it's dropped so much that it's probably a bargain on the supply and demand and the fundamental side. Technically, there's no sign of a bottom, though. And with this trade war, with the stock market, uh, I'm just nervous. That, uh, for the bulls, at least, there's more downside here. Uh, I realize the fundamental people are already saying uh, one of the biggest, more well-respected uh, traders in the world even said, well, oil's a buy now. That It's done. But I'm not so sure. I, I think I think we could see yet another five dollar drop, and then it's probably going to chop around a while before it uh, moves higher. Uh, it, it's it's fascinating. It waited the last minute for a minor long-term cyclical high, and then it just crashed you know, like at last minute. Now I'm debating: can it put in a minor long-term low here in just the next couple of months? If so, I think that's going to 
that could possibly coincide with the rest of the world that maybe the economy's also bottom and we get that 2019 recovery. What worries me is what about that larger, major long-term cycle that relates to the recession? If that's down, we're not going to get much of a recovery at all in 2019 because it's going to take a while yet. And so I'm caught in the middle in the stock market, the economies, and even crude oil. Can we get this uh, minor long-term low and be bullish in 2019 uh, a bit for commodities uh, and economies? Or is this a long, long drawn-out process? And, and your question on, uh, like, demand for ethanol, since it's mandated to use ethanol if gasoline prices, crude oil prices are moving lower, in theory encourages the consumer to spend elsewhere, helps the economy, and it may encourage them to spend more and use more gasoline. Well, in theory, you could use a bit more ethanol. The problem is, since we're looking for this recession, is recessions in the, since 1980, as best I can tell, when I find recessions and line them up with these, these business cycles, is that uh, gasoline demand falls 7 to 15 percent. And it'll take five months to maybe a year, year and a half to do that. And, well, if you lose demand for gasoline, you're automatically losing demand for ethanol because it's, it's mandated. Mm -hmm. And the ethanol market has uh, really produced uh, too much. They expanded way too fast, and I kind of felt like it's going to be a behavioral economic moment when they're just going to store more. And past 10 years, I've been against analysts getting scared over, oh, they can't store any commodity, don't have enough storage. And it just seems like it's amazing how talented we are finding more storage for everything. It's grains, it's oil. There's always more storage. And I kind of thought that's what's going to occur about now, but uh, actually saw some good old standard economics come back into play here uh, when uh, one of the big ethanol producers shut down a plant on the East Coast. It's being mothballed. Like it's like they have no idea when it might come back on board or ever. So to me, that tells you they are looking at economics and saying there's no sense just trimming back a little trim back up trim quite back a bit a bunch, and, yeah. And, and, yeah, and don't store it hoping for a better <coughs> price or may not be a better price. Right. Now, now, what changed that mentality here? Because, the, you know, they've obviously been bowled up. There, there's another plant coming on here in Wichita, I believe, uh, in the future here. Why are they still going? Well, uh, they really thought they had an angle into China and ethanol and several other nations in the world for exports. And this trade war has really messed that yeah. up. Yeah, because China had that uh, by 2025 deal they had yeah. where they're going to have, uh, I can't remember what the number was, but it's a big number. Like 50% of their fuel was going to be uh, uh, renewable fuel of some sort when, and mainly towards the, the ethanol side of the business. So I, that's when that first tweet came out from President Trump about farmers are, you guys aren't going to be able to produce enough to, for China to buy. You know, you're going to have just... It's just going to be the best days ever, right? <clears throat> and then well, yeah. did that change? <laughs> yeah, nature, technology, and then political interference. Yeah, so. yep. So, good stuff there. Good stuff, Rich. Well, man, we've been uh, getting after here for a little bit. Any any final thoughts you want to throw out there? Just some just some key indicators you want to kind of keep people's eye on the ball there and and keep pushing forward. Yeah, I, we'll see what uh, in, the, in December we're going to get the November PMIs, uh, manufacturing service. And uh, last month I said I was concerned uh, when I saw things dropping in the stock market in October that uh, uh, businesses would respond to that immediately. Well, they didn't. The, the PMIs actually were about unchanged uh, for the U.S. Uh, but now, now I'm concerned after looking at these polls. Uh, you know, for the CFOs and uh, some of the other things that have been going, coming out here in the last week or two, 
Uh, be interested to see what that PMI does, and uh, I think it could show a, a significant drop here. And if it doesn't, great. It just shows we've still got a resilient economy and people don't want to give up. I, I mean, I must say, yesterday another nice indicator came out that hotel occupation uh, was 66, almost 67 percent. They said that was record high. They've, they've never seen that high a level. So people are traveling. They're doing business. They're using rooms. And we actually added more hotel rooms. So that record high is actually better than you think when you go back and look at the greater details. So they're definitely saying we got a good economy still, but the stock market is sending some signals that it's not so sure about the future. Goldman Sachs come out this week saying they think uh, the economy is only going to be 2% GDP by the end of 2019. They're saying stock investors ought to raise a little cash. So they're optimistic. They're still saying growth. They're saying it just won't be as, as good a year as what we've seen this year and last. Yeah. Yep. Well, Rich, good stuff, man. Uh, love having you on. Hope we can have you on again next month and talk about some some reports that come out in December and, and what those look like. And and uh, I like uh, I like having you on, man, because you make you blow my mind every time we're on here. So <laughs> thanks for being on. And and uh, if guys want to reach out to you, what would be the best way to do that? Probably the direct tweet, uh, Rich Posson at Rich Posson. Okay. Right on. That'll work, man. Well, Rich, I appreciate it, and uh, we'll catch you next time. Thank you. All righty. Well, that's going to do it for this edition of the Moving Iron Podcast. Remember, if you want to continue any of these conversations, you can hit me up on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at Moving Iron LLC. You can also send me an email at Moving Iron Podcast at movingironpodcast.com. You can also visit the Moving Iron Podcast YouTube channel. Here you can find Morning Market Roundup with Chip Nellinger and Angie Setzer, also Tax Moves with Glenn Birnbaum. Moving Iron Podcast is proud to be part of the Global Ag Network. The network is going live soon, so check out globalagnetwork.com for more details and updates. You will be able to hear Dryline Farmer Podcast, Girls Talk Ag, the Topsoil Podcast, Ag News Daily, Working Cows, Heifer Please, and Throwback Iron. Please visit the movingironllc.com website. Here you can find information, details, and updates for the 2019 Moving Iron Summit in Nashville, Tennessee. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can leave a review and subscribe at your favorite podcasting platform. You can also find this podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher Radio, TuneIn Radio, and SoundCloud. So until next time, let's go move some iron. This is Casey Seymour. Out. Moving iron in the 21st century. Hardworking people working hard for you and me. See